3: Okay, welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett, and I am the host of this show, and the guest today is Ted Love. I first spoke to Ted Love at length about three years ago. I interviewed him for our piece on racial disparity in biotech, and he was a great source for me in that article, and he, we, I, I did a photo shoot with him. He was a lead image for the for the article. And ever since then, I put him on the list for First Rounders because I thought I'd really like the chance to get his full background and talk about his path through science and what it took to succeed at Haverford and Yale as he did. And given what is happening in my country, our country, Ted's country and my country, I thought maybe now was the time to do it. And so I reached out and said, is Ted willing to do this? Let's talk about his past and let's see if we can have a useful conversation on race, as useful as we possibly can. And he said, yeah, he wanted to do it. So that's what this is. We set up a video call, because we're still not doing things face-to-face, and we sat down and talked about him growing up in Huntsville, Alabama, him going to Haverford, a small liberal arts private school where the students were mostly white, him going to Yale. Uh, we talked about why, in some ways, he thinks the company that he helms, Global Blood Therapeutics, is a social justice company. And we talked about a bunch more. We talked about race as a construct. We talked about police brutality. And yeah, let's just get into it. I think all these that I put out are good, or I wouldn't put them out, but I found this useful in ways that maybe other conversations weren't. I don't know. I hope Ted feels the same. Anyway, here it is, your First Rounders podcast with Ted Love. Listen up. So anyway, it's good to see you. How are you doing? It's good to see you. I'm, I'm doing very well.
2: It's good to talk to you again.
3: So I, you know, generally these kind of focus on uh, a person's path through science, right? How they made their way from science, usually into the industry side. That's kind of the tie that holds this whole show together. Yep. And so let's let's I want to do that with you. And you know, you and I have talked about some of this in the past, but I think the best way to start is, you know,
2: how did you grow up, and how did you get interested in science? So as you know, I uh, grew up uh, on a farm uh, in Alabama. Uh, there were Eight kids, so there were ten people living in a very, very small home. There was actually a, a girl's room and a boy's room, so we had five boys sleeping in one room and three girls in the other room. And my parents had the had the third bedroom in our house. Yeah. Um, um my 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 family also was not a family with a lot of educational background. Um, my um, uh, neither of my parents uh, completed high school. Um, but, but, but I would say this, my, my family was very much a family of love and support, uh, and stability, uh, and hard work, um, uh, and discipline also. And I actually became interested in science because number one, I liked it. I really liked science and I really liked math and I had a natural uh, it appears skill at that yeah and I was also struck by my family doctor. you know he was somebody that everybody admired um, and he seemed to have a different lifestyle than we had. He certainly did. So it kind of was a nice combination of things for me that I like science. Um, uh, I like math. I thought that could position me one day to become a doctor and um, our family doctor was really the only person of color that I was around that, uh, was so respected and admired and also had a good lifestyle.
3: Yeah. So in this, in this, these eight kids, where do you fall in that, in that lineup?
2: I am, if you count down, uh, I would be number six. So I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Yeah. Near Near the bottom
3: bottom, then. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you lived on this farm. Your, your parents were farmers.
2: Well, my father actually worked on Redstone Arsenal uh, that was where he really made a living, uh, but we had about a twenty-acre farm that we farmed, uh, and that was something that I grew up working uh, along with my brothers, uh, particularly my brothers, and my father also worked. But my father worked on the arsenal full time. He, I'm sorry, where did he work? He worked on Redstone Arsenal. You've yeah. you've heard of the Red, Redstone rockets uh, for the for the space program. Uh, those rockets were made on Redstone Arsenal.
3: Oh, so that's right. Because I forgot this. You grew up in Huntsville. That's correct. Absolutely. Okay. So that's why your family was there for this
2: job. Well, my fa- my um, my my mother grew up uh, was born and grew up in Scottsboro, Alabama, which is about fifty miles north uh, of Huntsville. North of Huntsville? Yeah, about north north of Huntsville, fifty miles. My father was born and raised in Huntsville. Uh, And uh, it actually turns out my grandfather had been a very successful farmer. And uh, for a black man, I think, had been uh, fairly wealthy. So when he died, all of the children, and he had about uh, 10 kids, I believe, all of the kids inherited 20 acres of land. So he was a fairly wealthy person. Unfortunately, what was very characteristic uh, happened to him, though, when black people would die in the South, They were typically represented by white lawyers, because all lawyers were white. Um, And uh, their wealth never really got very efficiently translated. My father was probably entitled to a lot more than 20 acres, but that's what he got, and that's what all of his his siblings got.
3: So you, you mean the lawyer would skim off the top? Yeah. So instead of everybody getting 30 acres, you might each get 20, and then the lawyer somehow got 20 acres out of it, that kind of thing?
2: Uh, you know, I don't know how it worked, but it was always clear to me that uh, my grandfather had really amassed a significant amount of wealth for a black man. And when it got distributed, it was only really yeah. enough for 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 the kids to get twenty acres.
3: I each. see. Yeah. So he, you know, the family's looking around like it used to be more here, and for some reason, it's not quite as much as it was before the lawyer got yeah. a hold of him. Yeah. 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 Um, did, is it safe to say that your dad uh, decided he didn't want to be a farmer? He's like, I'm not going to do that life, I'm going to
2: do something else. I'm, I know I wouldn't say that. Um, my father ended up in the military, like a lot of people uh, his age, and um, uh, after the military, he ended up uh, uh getting a job working on the arsenal because it was a way to support his family. The, the farm really didn't support us, uh, my father's job on the arsenal. Support. He just worked in a warehouse. He was yeah. uh, a person who moved things around and placed things and recovered things from a big warehouse. He only had a fourth grade education, so he did not have one of the uh, kind of jobs that they were actually working on the rockets. He was really working in in a in a um, in a warehouse.
3: But but you your family used the farm just to produce food for yourself.
2: We did. We had yeah, big gardens. Uh, we had yeah. big gardens, so that way we were able to feed ourselves. But we also had cattle and we had uh, pigs, so we would generate a lot of our own food. Um, uh, but we didn't really produce enough on that farm to support the whole family. Um, we, were, we were we were growing enough corn to feed our animals, um, but not really sell it. Um, yeah. We were growing enough hay to generally feed our animals, but not really sell it. Uh, we never really got into cotton, uh, the cotton that I picked. I picked for money.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So did, uh, was, was your father's job, did that open your mind to, I mean, did you ever consider like, well, maybe I want to go into space or astronaut or anything like that? Never thought about astronaut. I did think about engineering.
2: Uh, Engineering was probably the only thing that I ever remotely considered. And again, that fit with my interest in, uh, in math and, and science. Um, but, um, but, but medicine was always something that I was more drawn to uh, emotionally. Engineering was probably a backup, if you will, Yeah. because uh, I certainly wasn't sure if I'd be able to get into medical school uh, as a kid. So I think engineering was kind of a backup uh, career option. But so your plan the whole way was medical school when you were young? It was. I mean, in fact, yeah. I think my nickname became Dr. Love when I was probably about 10, <laughs>
3: Okay. So, um, I mean, yeah, I know that you went to Haverford for college, but as you're going through school, are you thinking like, how do I, you know, are my grades good enough? Am I going to be able to get into medical school one day? What colleges were you thinking about? Um, You know, what what was your process?
2: Well, it was interesting in that I went to a big public high school uh, and uh, very few kids from my high school would end up at Ivy League schools. Um, In fact, it really wasn't a school that was geared toward that so the way I went about colleges was very much the way I went about a lot of things I went to the library I got books on colleges I read them uh, and I decided to focus on um, the best places to get an education in the country and of course I wasn't sure where I'd get in so I applied to the usual Ivy Leagues the Harvard the Yales et cetera. But I also applied to outstanding smaller schools like Haverford, uh, like Pomona, uh, like Oberlin. And um, uh, in the end, uh, I decided to go to Haverford. I didn't get in everywhere either, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but i did i did I did better than I thought I might do. And I was thrilled that I got into Haverford um, uh, both at the moment and also at this point in my life because, It ended up being an exceptional place for someone like me who really wasn't as prepared as I might have been had I gone to stronger schools. Uh, It it, it allowed me to really make the transition and become highly competitive with my classmates um, uh, because of the kind of individual nature of the education that I got there.
3: But when so when you finished high school, you must you had great grades. I'm assuming if you're thinking about Harvard, you think about Ivy
2: League. You must have done well. I did. I, I did. I had very good grades. I was also a leader. I was also an athlete. So I kind of had um, uh, a lot of things going for me. The thing that was the hardest was um, uh, the standardized test. I ended up doing okay. Um, I did probably extremely well for somebody from my background, but I. Wasn't I wasn't a superstar in terms of SAT uh, when I started to be compared to a lot of the people that Haverford recruits from particularly private schools.
3: Okay. So what, what, uh, I'm just curious, what sports?
2: I mostly, uh, in the end, I was a wrestler. I, I started out playing football and basketball, but, uh, you know me and I'm about five, six. Yeah. Uh, so eventually, uh, it became a big disadvantage no matter how determined I was as, you know, people got bigger and bigger and bigger for me to be uh, super competitive. So I dropped back to wrestling where it was really based on weight. I mean, I think wrestling is such
3: a, um, there's such a community of wrestlers. I mean, it's when you meet another wrestler, you automatically know what that, you know, what that sport is. It's unique. No,
2: I've always felt that way. It's very unique. Um, It's, um, it's an individual sport. Um, but you're on a team So I, I loved it Because I love my teammates And I loved us trying to win as a team But fundamentally When you get on the mat It's you and another person yeah. And the thing I would tell the people You either get your butt kicked or you win uh, <laughs> And so You go out there to win uh, And I was particularly Excited to not get my butt kicked uh, When I went out there Were you good? I was pretty good
3: Yeah, I could tell all right, I was thinking about this today. This sort of you going to Haverford, and and this must have been a, this was a jump on many levels, right? Like you weren't going from the south to the north, probably a jump in class, right? I mean, I'm assuming there were a lot of more affluent people at this school. It's going to be a jump in race, on top of that, and then fourth, it's like I think in if if we're counting your parents, you've been like first to college, which is a whole another level of anxiety. Yeah, I don't mean you and your family, but your your parents had not gone to college, so now you're sort of like this next level. Yeah. And all of that must have been rolled into that, you know, you first arriving on that
2: campus. It was it it was it was a completely different experience. Uh, I'd only actually been on one airplane uh, my whole life up until then. It was a a high school trip to the Bahamas where we actually went on a prop plane uh, that we picked up in Florida. We drove to Florida, Florida Lauderdale, I and then we hopped on a little plot and then we flew yeah. uh, over to the Bahamas so that's yeah. the only plane I'd been on until I caught that plane to college and uh, I will tell you that um it was a brutal arrival in that Haverford students in the Haverford van uh van came to the airport to pick me up and I'll never forget that my bags came down uh the conveyor and when they hit uh the wall uh, of the, um, of the carousel, they exploded open. You know, these were old bags that were cheap and my clothes just kind of flew everywhere. And I was standing there embarrassed why these kids were picking me up. And I automatically felt like, boy, I'm really belong. from, uh, I don't belong. Furthermore, mm-hmm. just to give you how naive I was, I was wearing a suit. Uh, I, my, my, uh, my, um, my mother wanted me to look good when I went to college, and so uh, we went to J.C. JCPenney, and we bought a Johnny Carson suit. I remember this, and uh, I, I was wearing my Johnny Carson suit when I landed in the hot, muggy Philadelphia airport's a sweating and my bags exploding.
3: <laughs> first, first off, I didn't know that Johnny Carson had a line of suit number one. It was cheap, I'm sure. And, and two, just you know, the concept of like, oh, this that you know, you come to you come to pick up your bags and there was like this kid's going to school. Look at him, he's got a suit on for school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay um but i mean you know because we've talked before you end up doing really well at haverford you made all the adjustments that are required to overcome all those things
2: i did i i I had a fantastic time at haverford um and um uh I, i would say that you know it's interesting to talk about this during the whole kind of racial uh catharsis that we're going through in the united states right now um but, but uh, uh, just if I reflect back on Haverford, it was really a place where I felt, felt the emphasis was really about me. It wasn't about anything else. Um, and, but it wasn't colorblind, by the way. Uh, nobody was trying to focus on colorblindness. I was being accepted for who I was. I was being embraced for who I was. I had some limitations um, when I went there. In fact, um, uh, my uh, English teacher told me that I was identified in advance as someone who might have difficulty uh, passing the first uh, the first course that was required. And um, about halfway through the course, she told me that. And she said, i got to tell you, I'm impressed at how hard you work and how well you're doing. Now, I didn't get an A. Uh, there were, there were kids that were really, really gifted, and and, and they got the A. But I, um, I I don't know what I got, but I did better than she expected. And yeah. um, I continued to do better and better as uh, the semesters passed.
3: But she, they had identified you for all those reasons we just mentioned, that you were coming from yeah. a black community to a white one, that you've been first to college in your family, that sort of thing. And they thought, this is a person who's going
2: to need extra extra attention. That's right. And, 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 and so they brought me there with a understanding and a commitment to deliver on that. And that was extremely apparent to me early on, but it wasn't, um, the the funny thing about it, I think that it was all in this belief that this guy can do extraordinary things, but we've got to get him, uh, up to speed. Uh, And there was a commitment to get him up to speed. And um, one of the things I can tell you about me, uh, and this helped me in wrestling is that I don't give up, uh, and I'm very determined. So when you put someone like me in an environment that wants to help me, then, uh, there is, there's a lot of work going on and there's a lot of commitment to succeed. And I was committed to succeed for all the people that were trying to help me to succeed.
3: Yeah. Both at home and at the school.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
3: You know, you just said this thing I thought was interesting. You said that uh, you, the school wasn't colorblind in any way and you are accepted for who you were. What do you mean by colorblindness? Like, I, uh...
2: Well, um, many of the Ivy League schools, uh, including these small kind of Ivy-like schools like Haverford, uh, you know, uh, Swarthmore, et cetera, had gone through a situation in the 70s where they brought in a fairly large number of African-American students. And... I've met many students from that era uh, and it was very bad. It was very traumatic for those students and it was very traumatic for those schools. And I think fundamentally what many of them learned is that if you bring these individuals here, you need to make the environment welcome them rather than expect them to assimilate. So Haverford wasn't trying to get me to assimilate. Um, uh, I obviously, changed when i was there but i was not assimilating i was i did switch over from wearing suits uh to (laughs) jeans and wearing khakis uh that was actually more comfortable uh but 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 i never 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 even remotely stopped acting the way i am fundamentally i never began to express my views about anything any differently i never i never assimilated
3: i see so the the other schools have been like, hey, we're allowing African-Americans into this university now, but we're not changing a thing about it. You come in yeah. and fit in or get out versus right. was like, listen, we are going to let you in, not let you in, but invite you in and also make sure that we actually support you.
2: Yeah. And I think I think the school actually wanted that. And I ended up being, you know, there were, Haverford was about three percent black students. So it was, it was, we were minuscule uh, in yeah. terms of. Uh, the population. It's a small school to begin with, so you're talking small numbers and small percentages. And I ended up being the first African-American president of Student Body. Uh, And the reason that happened, I think, is because I was very authentic all the time. And I think people never wondered about where I was coming from, Uh, uh, never worried about my motivations, my intent. Um, and that, I think, ended up being something that we all grew into. So I, I kind of grew up at Haverford. I grew up with Haverford, and um, not that everything was perfect. I don't want to suggest that, yeah. but it, it, was, it was a life-changing experience, and I, I can tell you, even now, I occasionally get a letter from someone in my class uh, who I don't even remember necessarily, who would say to me things like, "I follow what you're doing in biotechnology," and none of this is a surprise to me, having known you at Haverford. And you know, it's just amazing to get these letters because when I was there, I was trying to figure out how am I going to get good enough grades, how am I going to get through. You know, for me, it was just an experience. But I, but it's very clear in retrospect that many of my classmates were looking at me as somebody that uh, they were looking up to, which I had no idea of.
3: Yeah, they expected you to do well. Yeah. Yep. You, you told me this before, and I never forgot it. You said that when you first got to Haverford, you had a little bit of uh, racial anxiety. You know, am I going to be able to compete at this level? But by the time you left, that had been obliterated.
2: That had been obliterated. Um, but um, uh, the, the main thing that I learned at Haverford early on is how to how to study uh, I'd never been in an environment where it where the academics were so intense. And I'd been able to uh, essentially get over uh, all my career because I was pretty good. Uh, but at Haverford, the bar was just so much higher. And I didn't really know how to study. Uh, and ironically, my chemistry professor ended up being the one who gave me the lectures you know about this is how you study this is how your memory decays this is how you rewrite your notes I mean and I took notes on how he told me how to study and by the time I left Haverford I was very well trained to go about uh, studying. Uh, and that was a great great uh, background for going in the, going to medical school at Yale
3: can I can I ask you like in high school you
2: didn't really need to study did you you just got good grades. You know, I studied, but I didn't study, I didn't, I didn't have great techniques, uh, but I didn't need them. Um, uh, I could still get A's without great techniques, Um, but at Haverford, uh, to really be competing at that level um, and to try to be in the top, you know, 20% of the class, I I needed to, I needed to get the best techniques, which I didn't know.
3: Yeah. Okay. So you make all this growth in four years and you leave, you're still thinking medical school, right? You're like, I'm going to be a doctor. That's still your plan.
2: Oh yeah. No, I never gave up on that. I was worried my first semester, but after my first semester, I think it looked realistic that I would get into medical school.
3: Yeah. So then you went to Yale. I went to Yale,
2: Yeah. which which is a great medical school, as you know.
3: Yeah. So what was the thinking there? Were you thinking, okay, this is it. I'm on my way to being a doctor. I'm going to open a practice one day or...
2: That uh... was it. That was it. I mean, my intent in going into medicine in the beginning was just about becoming a physician and really doing what my family doctor did, Uh, likely go back to Alabama uh, and provide medical care to people from my community. That's how I thought about it in the beginning. Of course, it ended up evolving very differently, but that's pretty much the way I thought until I was well into my career at Yale, and people began to say to me that I should think about an academic career.
3: Were you a professor before Genentech came calling?
2: I was, uh, but very junior. Uh, so after Yale, of course, I went to the Mass General, yeah. where I did my right me, right? Yeah, I did my, I did, I, my internship residency and, and fellowship in cardiology. And then after all of that, I was invited to join the faculty Uh, so I did join the faculty and then I was recruited by Genentech.
3: Okay. So tell me, tell me about that. I mean, had you really considered the biotech industry? Did you even really kind of know?
2: I had no idea what biotech was. Uh, and, and what happened to me was, um, that I was head down focused on becoming an academic. Of course, I always set goals and my goal was to become a full professor at Harvard one day. And at the time, I don't think an African American had ever achieved that. So uh, I was particularly focused on, on doing that. And my mentor, who was head of cardiology, got recruited out of Harvard and became president of R and D for Bristol Myers Squibb. And he and I, uh, he was really like a second father to me. My father died when I was at the Mass General, and Ed, you know, ultimately became not only my mentor in science and medicine. But almost like a second father. So it was through conversations with, with Ed that I began to think about doing something perhaps different than an academic career. And um, then I, so I looked at Bristol-Myers Squibb, but I also looked at these companies called biotech companies. And Genentech was really quite an extraordinary company in terms of science and, just the overall pedigree. And ultimately, I actually um, looked at taking a job at Merck, which is really an extraordinary company that I admire uh, at the time, run by Ray Vagelos, who I have great admiration for, and yeah. consider him my friend today. Um, and and Genentech. And, 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 and to give you the analogy, I actually decided that Merck was like Harvard, big, excellent, and Genentech was like Haverford. Small, but excellent. Yeah. And and I decided to go to small and excellent because I thought that'd be a better environment for me to learn quickly and, and, and the broad business uh, of, of, of how do you discover and develop drugs. And I think that ended up being a good decision, although I'm sure Merck would have been terrific as well. Genentech was remarkable. It's, it, was, it was a remarkable place. It was fairly small when I went there. So... We did everything. I would do everything from talk to scientists in the lab about experiments uh, that they were doing to uh, dealing with the Food and Drug Administration, designing trials, clinical investigators around the world. Uh, it I got a very broad experience there, uh, which was not really achievable at a bigger company.
3: Right. So Genetic is this introduction to biotech for you. And it begins this sort of career where you move from there to TheraVance, I think.
2: I did. I moved from TheraVance. And again, Roy Vagelos called me. So Roy had retired from Merck and he was one of the founders of this company, TheraVance, and he was chairman of the board. So Roy called me and said, you know, your reputation is pretty amazing as a drug developer. And we'd like for you to come in as one of the senior leaders to help us build this company from the ground. Uh, as a drug discovery and development organization, basically to create a pharmaceutical company.
3: But how did you know Roy in the first place? If you didn't work at Merck, did
2: you just somehow? Oh, so Roy is a cardiologist by training. Uh, Roy is also an alumnus of the Mass General. He trained at the Mass General. Huh. And it's a small world. So Roy yep. had um, come to the Mass General on a few occasions uh, to give grand rounds. Uh, and he spent time with the Department of Cardiology. So he knew me. Uh, through that connection, uh, I think was the major connection. And then when I was doing well at Genentech, I think my reputation among the headhunters kind of began to grow. So I think he knew me from some direct interaction. We probably had a number of people who overlapped. Um, uh, and then and, and, and then I'm sure there were headhunters and other people also directing him to me.
3: But when, when you say that you were doing well at Genentech, what does
2: that mean? I means I was getting promoted a lot, and I was getting more and more responsibility, and I was getting it very quickly. Um, I, I actually uh, uh, became uh, the youngest vice president in the history of Genentech. Uh, now, David Ebersman, who later became CFO, ended up uh, uh, eclipsing that. Uh, but at the time when I was made vice president, I, I'm fairly sure I was the youngest person to ever become a vice president.
3: Yeah. Okay. So he, so Roy wanted you to come to TheraVance
2: to just oversee the pipeline, the development yeah. of the pipeline. Yeah. 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 It was, uh, it was a pretty, it was a pretty uh, early stage company when I went there, I think we had less than 20 employees, but we were very ambitious about our platform in chemistry. And we felt that platform could quickly produce best in class drugs in a variety of areas. So we were thinking very big, and I agree with Roy that if you're going to think very big, you need to get some high-level people to really help shape the strategy and the vision. I always say you develop drugs backwards. Um, You have to have an understanding of what the market needs and how your product is going to be positioned in a market, and then you do the phase three to support that. You do the phase two to support the phase three, and the phase one, obviously, to support the phase one. So It's all about supporting um, uh, the vision to get the drug to the market in the way that you want it. And that's really what I was hired to do, to basically come there and bring some commercial thinking early on uh, and bring drug development thinking early on, trial design thinking, regulatory thinking. And it was a good fit. I was a good fit for them.
3: How long did you stay there?
2: I stayed there about three years about three years um uh and i left when george rathman who i know you know yeah. um called me and said i hear that you would make a good ceo and um i'd like to see if you'd be interested in taking a position where i would mentor you be the ceo and um that was um a terrific offer from George Rathman, not because of the company, by the way, the company had a lot of problems. The The real magic here was uh, being able to be mentored by George Rathman.
3: Yeah. Yeah. One of the biotech's, you know, hallowed names as far as CEOs goes. Yeah, absolutely. So, but for you, that meant that not only you're going to oversee the pipeline and think about where drugs would fit in the marketplace, but now you have to manage people on top of that, the whole company, basically. The whole was, company. That, uh, was that, um, you know, was that, hard to figure out. How did you learn that?
2: I probably learned most about managing people at Genentech because as I said, I got promoted there very quickly. When I yeah. went to, when I went to Genentech day one, I had no employee. No, I managed no one. That was great because just managing myself uh, was enough and managing to really understand the environment. But I got promoted very quickly. So uh, uh, I began to take on managing people um, and actually I was I was fairly comfortable doing that because my view of it was just treat everyone the way I want to be treated and it should work out okay. And yeah. I, I committed to doing that and managing people, as you know, can be a challenge. But if you kind of keep yourself centered on doing uh, the right thing, really just managing people the way you would want to be managed if the tables were reversed, um, it, it at least provides a nice framework.
3: But also, you know, you, you said before that you always acted authentically, and I think that really helps be a leader, too. Do you agree with that? If you're acting uh, authentically, then people will follow you.
2: I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, in fact, um, what, what I've noticed in my career is that one of the things that happens with people is that if there's a void of information, they fill that void with something worse than the reality, typically. So one of the things that's important as a leader is to provide clarity uh, to provide transparency um, and to be honest and 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 I think you have to be honest when the news is good or bad uh, uh, if you're only only uh, honest when the news is good then quite frankly you're not really being transparent
3: yeah yeah okay so as you said that was Novello right and that that company, had some problems is that why exactly. is that why you left
2: no 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 i left um so 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 when i went to the company it was called HiSeq. uh it was a company that had been founded on uh some clever technology around sequencing dna that's the uh-huh. name HiSeq. it was hybridized based sequencing um and um the company had gotten into the whole genomics space and uh uh, a little bit like the early Insight, they were trying to make a business out of that sequencing, but also a business out of uh, SNPs, um, mm-hmm. and 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 neither of those businesses ultimately really unfortunately went very far. The reason the company did did well, very well actually, was because uh, George uh, uh, helped me to turn the company into a biotech company, much like Genentech. So we. Uh, in license to compound from Amgen, of all places, and that compound looked extremely exciting, and it made it all the way to phase three, and our market cap exceeded a billion dollars, which was huh. quite a lot of money back then. So yeah, uh, it was it was doing extremely well, and then the drug failed in phase three, which shocked everyone, and of course, our market cap. You know, it went down dramatically and we merged the company with another company that needed the money that we had raised. And I um, went on the board of that new company, um, but uh, uh, but the CEO of the other company, uh, of course, I wanted him to continue to be the CEO uh, of the yeah. company.
3: Yeah. I mean, that failure in phase three is, it's the story of biotech, really. I mean, how many drugs have looked great until something happens in phase three. It happens all the time. Yeah. It, it, it happens. It happens
2: all the time. And in retrospect, I understand the mistakes, uh, but, 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 uh, and I, I'm unlikely to make those mistakes again, but there are so many ways to fail. And as you know, in drug development yeah. and uh, my goal is to never make the same mistake twice. Uh, but this was one quite frankly, where almost nobody saw it coming. Uh, otherwise the company wouldn't have been worth it. Over a billion dollars based on one right. product.
3: So then, you, were you just kind of a free agent floating around then? How did you get to Onyx?
2: Um, so I actually retired. So after um, this merger, um, it was very painful. It was extraordinarily painful. I, I am not. Uh, I, I I'm not good at failure. Um, I'm definitely not good at letting people down. Um, I felt like I had let my employees down. I felt like I had let uh, our investors down, I, I was quite frankly um, very depressed. And um, I um, had, you know, been fortunate that um, I had made enough money that I didn't really have to work to, you know, pay bills and things. Uh-huh. Um, so I just retired. I just said, I'm, I'll just sit on boards and I'll, you know, Help people, but I'm not going to work full time anymore. And Tony called me up. Tony was Tony Coles, was CEO of Onyx. And Tony and I have been friends since since we were in college, actually. And um, he called me up and said, "Um, I really would love you to think about being our head of R&D. And I agreed to come out of retirement uh, to lead the approval of a drug that they had just acquired for multiple myeloma. And I said, "Okay, I'll I'll help get this drug approved." And after I get the drug approved, I, I'm going to retire again. But, but, but I will help this company get the drug approved. And and we did.
3: The the uh, your first retirement there. Why? Because you felt like I don't want to put myself in a position to let people down again.
2: Yeah. If 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 I mean, maybe I took the job too seriously. I mean, I'm not sure if I want to say that, but but running a company and losing a billion dollars of market cap and thinking about what that meant for the investor, uh, running a company where you've got hundreds of employees and you have to reduce uh, the company to essentially no employees, you you think about what that means to people's lives. Uh, It was just, it was very difficult. And I, was uh reluctant to put myself in a position to go through that again i'm not bragging about this by the way you could call this i was i was i just i just didn't want to get back on the bike i had fallen
3: yeah yeah i mean looking back though right because we know that companies fail all the time and ceos will jump right back up and do it again almost like a badge of honor well of course we fail that's what a startup is et cetera. um yeah it, it's good that tony got you out of a
2: out of retirement well, it worked out well for both of us. Uh, it worked out well for both of us, and uh, you probably don't know this, but my mother died of multiple myeloma. I did uh, not know. And, that. and and my mentor at Harvard at uh, Haber died of multiple myeloma. So multiple myeloma was actually something that was somewhat personal for me, and uh, I did feel like Onyx had a potentially very exciting drug that could be a breakthrough for these patients, and 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 so I. Uh, uh, I, I went into that job with a degree of, of 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 desire to help the legacy of my mother and mentor.
3: I see. So, if it had been a, if Tony was like, "Hey, we've got this great uh, a drug for baldness," you would not have come out of retirement for that. It was probably a- not baldness, probably not
2: baldness, but I did yeah. do it significantly because of my relationship with Tony. Yeah. Um, and I think the way I approached the job was definitely driven by the passion to help my alumni patients.
3: Yeah. So when you when uh, Onyx is bought eventually, uh, I think for like 10 point something billion dollars, Amgen yeah. bought it. Yep. Huge exit. Um, yep. And is that when is that when you left?
2: I left before Amgen bought the company, because as I told Tony, I was simply there to get the drug approved. So literally the day that uh, uh, the advisory committee uh, said thumbs up uh, and the FDA said, we're going to approve it, I uh, I retired. I retired. You were serious. Yeah, I was serious, and we uh, bought a home in the wine country, and um, we were we moved to the wine country.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds.
2: Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right?
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb dot com slash host
3: Well, of course, uh, that's not how it ends, right? You're up in the Rolling hills of California, working on your your wine collection, I guess, but you're now the CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics. So how did you get back in the game?
2: Well, it's unlikely because I, I I did go down this pathway of sitting on boards, and that was what I committed to. I really felt I could help CEOs, I could help management teams, I could help companies uh, with my experience, and I didn't have to get back into uh, the hot seat uh, of being a CEO and and the kind of commitment I knew that I would bring to that kind of job.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But what happened is Charles Holmesy, who is someone that I met for the first time when I was at the Mass General, he uh, was a junior cardiologist when I went there as um, an intern and and later as a cardiology fellow. And I had great admiration uh, for Charles. And so we kind of had somewhat parallel careers because he left Harvard ultimately Mm -hmm came in the industry, Charles called me up one day and said, look, we're starting this company based on sickle cell and we want you to run it. And I said, no, I said, I'm I'm not going to come out of retirement this time, but I agreed to take a position on the board and to mentor the CEO and to uh, help the company with its decisions at the board level and over the course of about a year, two things were going on. One is every board meeting, they'd ask me to be the CEO. Uh, and uh, the second is that the, the science got more and more compelling for me. And one day, uh, the, uh, the scientists come in and they present data uh, in the sickle mouse model, um, which is a very impressive model because basically sickle cell disease is, is, is a single defect yeah. Um. Uh, on, on a single protein, uh, and you can introduce that defect into mice, and you can make them essentially have sickle cell disease. And this particular compound, essentially, would begin to reverse the phenotype of sickle cell disease, literally within days of feeding the mice this compound. So I became convinced that this will help sickle cell patients if it's safe and well tolerated. And then I uh, 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 asked a series of questions about what I thought might give me a sense of whether this would be safe and well tolerated. And after I convinced myself that I thought this was a real deal, and uh, uh, I went back to Charles and I said, if you still want me to do this, I'm willing to discuss it with my family. And my family, um, my daughters actually said to me, uh, you've got to do this step. This is something to help sickle cell patients. I know how you feel about sickle cell patients, and you're really extremely well-qualified to do this better than anyone. So you've got to do it. And that's that's how I came out of retirement. It was really a um, um, kind of a conflation of uh, my desire to help sickle cell patients, uh, knowing that 95% of them are African-American, uh, in the US, knowing how tragically you know, their experience has been uh, historically, uh, having observed that uh, firsthand as a physician at Yale and at Harvard later. And Charles Holmesy and my friendship with him, and quite frankly, my experience as a drug developer saying, I think this is a winner. And uh, um, I think I can drive this winner to uh, benefit the patient quickly. So I take the job really with with that set of facts.
3: Yeah, I'd, I'd read, I mean, you told me before that you consider global blood therapeutics in some ways to be almost a social justice company, because, and you said this to me too, and I had not considered it. I mean, there are countless companies that are focused on cancer, Alzheimer's, you know, we've tried and failed dozens of times at that. But how many companies are actually focused on sickle cell? And it's almost none. And why is that?
2: Yeah, I think we're the yeah. I think we're the only company that yeah. has taken this on, and I'm extraordinarily uh, thrilled about. It. Now there are there there are other companies that are pursuing drugs and this disease now, uh, which, for which I'm thrilled. Yeah, um, but um, but I think we understand this disease better than anyone, and I think we are making compounds in our labs um, in addition to Oxprida uh, that's already out there treating patients. Uh, I think that this is, this is going to be the sickle cell company one day. I'm, I'm quite convinced of that. Uh, I think we'll do other things down the road, but kind of like Gilead became the HIV company. Yeah. I think GBT is going to be the sickle cell company uh, and that's a lot of work ahead of us.
3: Um, I just had read one of these op-eds that you were part author on, um, or one of the many authors on. And I want to, I want to touch on what you just said about when you were treating patients at Yale, that you had seen the way African-Americans were sort of, I guess, dismissed for, I don't know if you meant specifically this disease or just in general by the healthcare field. And can you give me more detail on that?
2: Well, I, I don't think there's any doubt that, um, uh, our society tragically, um, uh, has racism fairly distributed. And I don't, yeah. think doctors or nurses or any professional group for that matter uh, is immune to uh, what I would consider to be an infection that's rampant in our country. But sickle cell patients were particularly complicated because they have pain and you can't see pain. Um, and they were often young because they died prematurely. So you didn't really have old sickle cell patients. Uh, typically, they were young people and they needed pain medication. So it was a setup uh, for those patients to kind of develop a reputation of being something that they never were, which is drug seekers. They're seeking opiates. And that became the way a lot of us in medicine truly saw them. And it was tragically untrue. Uh, I mean, you do, I'm sure, have an occasional patient that is um, uh, uh, is addicted or something. Yeah. But, but, but that's that's extraordinarily rare in sickle cell disease. Sickle cell patients, uh, and now that I've gotten to know them very well, they, they, they don't want to go to the hospital. They don't want to interact with healthcare professionals. They don't want pain medication if they can manage themselves at home. So they really are only coming to the hospital when they are truly desperate. And then to be met by people that are so judgmental, uh, negatively judgmental about them, is, is really kind of the final tragedy.
3: So they're, they're coming in and they're they're giving this nebulous, I'm in pain. Yes. And doctors are like, listen, stop thinking about it. Uh, I don't know, take some aspirin, whatever, and dis- dismissing them as opposed to actually finding out that they have sickle cell or they know they already know.
2: Oh, many times people know, although sickle cell is a relatively rare disease. And so many times when a sickle cell patient goes to an emergency room, they may actually interact with a physician that doesn't really know sickle cell very well. Yeah. Um, And we as doctors are not very good at being uh, uh, vulnerable. So we don't tend to say, I don't know much about sickle cell disease. Uh, We tend to pretend that we know plenty. Uh, And... Oftentimes, you have a sickle cell patient who knows more about sickle cell than the doctor does, and they know exactly how much morphine they require to really break their brain, and that is often a situation that makes people feel uncomfortable. I actually have a personal experience I can tell you about. When I was was at the Mass General, uh, my wife and I were out to dinner one evening, and she says, uh, Ted, um, I think one side of your neck is much bigger than the other. And I replied to her that I had just noticed that my shirt size is increasing, and it had increased by almost an inch. And I looked carefully, and sure enough, I had a tumor. Uh, And I ended up, it fortunately ended up being a benign tumor, but it was an extremely complex operation um, that lasted for probably eight hours or more. To remove to remove it. And they ended up doing a lot of damage uh, uh, to my sympathetic plexus. I was bleeding a lot after surgery. Uh, And I was in a lot of pain. Uh, And the doctor before uh, he left the hospital that night after surgery came to me, and I'm a physician, I'm a cardiologist. So he actually said, look, I have written a set of orders that basically puts you in charge. So you can get you know, Percocet, you can get morphine. He kind of gave me the menu of what he had left. And of course, I didn't want anything. I wanted to, you know, I'm like a typical person that yeah. I, I don't want any medications if I can avoid it.
3: Yeah. But as the
2: night went on, I just got into terrible pain. I was bleeding and I was in terrible, terrible pain. So I rang the call bell and a young nurse came in and I told her exactly what I wanted in pain medicine. She almost fainted. She completely couldn't believe it. She pretty much ran out of the room. And I realized at that moment, I was like the sickle cell patient. But she, because she, I had a lot of medicine, I had a lot of expertise about what I wanted. And I knew what I needed. But she immediately thought I was a drug seeker because I she was couldn't. black and I was young. <laughs> and I knew exactly what I wanted. And it didn't occur to her that maybe I'm a physician.
3: But um, did, she couldn't. Did you say she couldn't believe that you had this your own ability to call in your own medication, or she couldn't believe that you knew exactly what you wanted? What was it that made her faint? Oh,
2: I think. Well, first of all, it is unusual for a patient to,
3: to tell say, you "I exactly. need."
2: Yes, I, yeah. I could you give me two milligrams of morphine? That's unusual okay. for a patient. Um, so, I, I, and I, I, I understand that. Um, but I actually suspect that had I been a white man, honestly, she might have said. No problem. No. Well, maybe she would have at least said, are you a physician? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I see. Uh, but she didn't do that. She read out of the room. She just assumed that there's something bad here. And of course, there was nothing bad there. In fact, it was all good. I had probably resisted pain medicine as much as any normal person, maybe even abnormal person would. Uh, but how I was reacted to it was really this story.
3: I see. She she did not, in her mind, ever cross that you could be a physician. No, because you're you're a no. black man laying in bed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get it. Um, you know this. The the last time I talked to you about this, this is about three years ago, and we are sort of talking about this disparity in biotech, this racial disparity. And I'm wondering uh, if you've seen any progress in the past three years.
2: You know, I I think I do. Um, uh, uh, The whole George George Floyd situation and what's going on in our country, um, while it's very painful and while it's very sad in a lot of ways, I see a lot of hope in this Uh, um, because I think, number one, people are realizing the magnitude of the problem. Um, it's been apparent to people like me yeah. my whole life, but I can't fix it. Um, the people who can fix it are suddenly, I think, aware of the magnitude of the problem. The The other thing is you look at the protests, even the riots, um, the, the diversity of the crowd is very different from what it was when Martin Luther King was essentially saying the same thing. Um, but I think we're at a point now where this problem is being embraced by all of us. It's not viewed as just their problem. Because as long as it's viewed as their problem, it's really never going to be fixed. Right, um, right. Um,
3: well, and, and why do you think, do you have an opinion of why that has suddenly clicked in place? Why? Why George Floyd and not Tamir Rice? Why George Floyd and not uh, Eric Garner?
2: You know, I I I don't know why uh, Tamir Rice um, uh, wouldn't have had the same effect, but but I do think that it's probably a bit of our nation progressing. It may even be a little bit because of COVID. I think COVID was making us all kind of more emotionally vulnerable, um, and and maybe being vulnerable, feeling vulnerable, allows you to connect in a different way when you see something so tragic. Yeah. Um, uh, and then finally, it was really it was really a brutal murder. Um, yeah. With bare bare hands. Um, yeah. Uh, it wasn't just a quick gunshot. It was it was literally, you know, eight minutes and forty six seconds. Yeah. Of collapsing someone's airway, uh, so I think it may have been a combination of our country changing, our country being in a different spot because COVID. I think was making us all much more pensive and thoughtful, um, and 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 in the nature of this, just slow suffocation.
3: I think so. I agree with all that, right? And I think there's. I'm working on this theory that there's one more element at play, and that and I'm and I'm basically talking about the white people who are protesting, especially the young white people who are pro- protesting. It's almost as if like we've been four years into a very petty and mean-spirited president, presidential administration. I mean, it's uh, divisive maybe isn't even a strong enough word, but there's been a lot of people who are not on his team, as I would say, who are just like finally like, screw this. Like everything came up in this moment and they're like, all right, this is it. We cannot take this anymore. All of it. George Floyd being the catalyst, and race being the catalyst, but everything else that they've been building up with for three or four years, I think it all suddenly they're just we can't take this anymore. The country is coming apart, and nobody's doing anything.
2: What do you think of that theory? I, I, I think it's a good theory. Uh, in fact, um, uh, many people have said they felt the election of Trump uh, was a backlash uh, by, on Obama. particularly yeah. on, on Obama, and 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 Trump is is dramatically more extreme in my view. Uh, oh. In terms of his policies and his rhetoric, yeah. uh, uh, in terms of what he stands for, than Obama. Obama was actually a fairly moderate I think, president. Me too. Um, but 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 of course, in the eyes of some people, um, he was black, and that was a big problem.
3: Yeah, that was so, the most extreme thing to happen: is a black yeah. man was running the country,
2: right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Which is <clears throat> so. So I do think that we very well may have a backlash. and and I hope we do, uh, to Trump, because Trump is, in fact, the direction of a decline of our country. Um, I mean, if we want to become the next Nazi Germany, then that's where we're going. And I think a lot of people are saying, no, no, that's not what America is about. That's not what we're going to let ourselves become. I actually think that if we can get race is a social invention. I mean, there's there, there's no reason to group people by – there's no more ra- rationales to group people by race than there is by height uh, mm-hmm. or by body weight. I mean, it's, it's 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 an invention that allows you to categorize people, unfortunately, around privilege, and it, it's kind of a silly invention, but it's so pervasive, and and this has happened not only in the United States, right? It's happened all around the world. We do this oh, yeah. with religion. We do it with race. We do it with uh, uh, uh Uh, social class, Uh, but these things uh, are fundamentally devious when when people start focusing on these things. It's really around disproportionately disproportionately rationalizing privilege, and I I think what that does is it brings the whole society down. Um, The performance of our country will do better if we get beyond this and I think a lot of people understand that all boats will rise, whereas hatred and discrimination is just going to hold the boat down and maldistribute uh, the wealth. And yep. there are those who are doing well in this maldistribution and may want to hold onto it. But I think a lot of us now are saying no more. It's just yeah. not morally acceptable to do this.
3: Yeah. I want to ask you this too. I think I, this reminded me of you. Um, Do you know, did you see this, the Kimberly Jones video that went viral? Um, John Oliver had it on his show. This American Life just ran it at their podcast. No, I have not seen it. This is, uh, she's an African-American woman and she was giving this sort of, um, started out as a sort of very direct explanation of why African-Americans cannot win in this country because they've been, all their money has been stolen from them for 400 years through slavery and then even when you're given a little bit, they uh, rig the game so that they constantly take money off. That She was using the Monopoly board to explain it. And at yeah. the end of it, she got very emotional, and it was a very powerful thing. That's why it went everywhere. But she said something in there about how even when um, you do let us in, he, there is psychological warfare where we're told that we're an equal opportunity higher. And that honestly made me think about that story you told me where you were at Haverford, and you were um, – there was a discussion going on about Regents uh, of the University of California versus Backy about yes. affirmative action, and all your yep. classmates, you guys have been discussing it. This was like in 1978, I think. Yeah. Your classmates were discussing it back and forth with you. You're, you're part of the conversation. And yep. a, a friend came up to you and said, you know, we've been hearing these conversations for weeks, and I think the winning arguments are made by Ted. And somebody said, oh, well, that's great until Ted takes your place in medical school. Yep. And this was this moment for you where you thought, oh, white people think that those are their slots, and the only way I get in is if I replace one of them, is if I don't earn it on my own. Yeah. yeah. And that made me think of you. Like, What do you think of that concept of, of affirmative action? I mean, you could make the argument, and I would make the argument, that the only way you can really change a people is to legislate it. I mean, politicians have said that over and over. If you want to make yeah. a change that people are unwilling to do, you legislate it. Yeah. But so the concept of affirmative action happening, but how do you deal with this? I don't want to say it's psychological warfare, but the concept that uh, maybe on both sides that the only reason a person of color is there is because they have been plucked and they haven't, they haven't earned it. It yeah. seems like a a complex problem that I don't quite know how to deal with.
2: Well, one of the, a book that I'm about halfway through that I've been reading is um, how to be an anti-racist. And I, I, I think that is a very, very thoughtful book. And it's really making, um, uh, it's really putting the focus on racist acts as opposed to having people try to focus on, am I racist or not? Because nobody uh-huh. wants to get into that discussion, right, about am I racist? And what he really makes the point very clear is that all of us have advertently or inadvertently supported racist things, whether it be policies or behaviors. I mean, I'll give you an example for me. This is a very soft example, but and I could probably come up with, with bigger ones. But I um I'm a season ticket holder uh to the San Francisco 49ers. And I watched the NFL emasculate Colin Kaepernick. And I've continued to pay thousands and thousands of dollars a year uh, to the NFL. That ticket. Yeah. Um and and what I'm really doing is I've been supporting uh uh clearly a lot of racist behavior. Um, and, and I I'm, I'm, I'm clear but I'm clear to say that I think that, I think there are many African Americans who have supported bigger police departments to deal with crime uh, now they haven't typically done it as the only solution but in fact I think in retrospect even Bill Clinton would say a lot of the things that they did um, accelerated the dramatic, and inappropriate incarceration of people of color. Yeah. Um, those were racist, those are racist policies. And so this book allows us to step back and say until we have essentially random distribution of wealth, resources, opportunities, there's racism because there will be random uh, distribution. Racism was invented to actually, you know, the focus on race was invented to do this. And so it's no surprising that it's so good. at. It. And so the only way you know you are really solving racism is the numbers have to change. The numbers have to change. And until they change, then you are dealing in an environment where racism is prevalent. Um, and, and that's the U.S. And I think that we're starting to get there. I was telling people, I think this term quota is, uh, is I, I viewed it uh, in my career as, as a very charged term. Yeah. Um, because we, we bring up quotas when we don't want to do something. When we do want to do it, we call them goals. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, so I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we like most commercial companies uh, have a sales force and we have to compensate them. Uh, based on their performance. So we literally count the number of bottles that are sold. We don't call those quotas. We call those goals. Yep. Why isn't your bottle a quota? The reason why it's not, we don't call it a quota, is that we don't want to stigmatize the bottle sold as negative. Uh, so I think the whole language uh, really does position things to be embraced or not embraced. And I, I actually think. Quota is a very negative to charge word. Um, affirmative action got to be negative to charge. But in fact, we've had quotas for hundreds of years in this country, I tell people all the time. And the quota for someone that looks like me was zero.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the quota thing, right. So as soon as you said it, I thought, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. Hey, well, now you're talking about a quota. We're not going to do that. That somehow forces companies to hire the wrong person. You need the best person for companies to survive because companies are cutthroat, et cetera. But I think quota, for white people anyway, it's so charged because that suddenly directly attacks them, meaning I could lose my job. Yeah. Yeah, if, if you want to do it, I think it's got to be legislated. I
2: don't know. I, I, I think you're right. And quite frankly, the, the thing that we all need to understand is that we should all be working uh, to get – the best people in the right positions. Uh, I, I, I do think that it's fair that I had to work hard to get into medical school. But I also think that, um, uh, that making the environment at every step along the way harder for me to get there wasn't fair. I was able to overcome that, uh, but many people cannot overcome that.
3: But you just said you said this thing too earlier, as you said, you learn this in wrestling. You never give up. Ted Love does not give up, right? Which means that Ted, loves ha- Ted Love has the life that he has now. But what about people who are, you know, 90% of your capabilities and intelligence, but they don't have quite the strong will. Like we can't make it impossible for them to succeed. And when you look at the things that you've done, you had to overcome the, the race difference between where you grew up and then Haverford, the class difference, the first to college, You know, all those things, all those little barriers you had to jump through, a lesser person wouldn't have made it. And that does not seem
2: right. It does not seem right. And I can tell you, I grew up with kids that were at least as smart as I was. Um, And they had very different paths. And uh, the question becomes, why did they have very different paths? Um, Now, some of it is chance, there's no doubt about that. But I think a lot of it, was uh, my family structure was able to recharge me and to keep me going. Um, I think that if I had not had a stable family environment, I would not have turned out the way I turned out. Um, So that's where this criminal justice system is really, really, really exacerbating the problem. When you take uh, black man at such high rate and you incarcerate them when you have the criminal system interacting with them so readily i mean i mean i mean the george floyd thing he should never even i mean it was it was not even an arrestable event really even yeah. the thing um, um even the thing in atlanta reason i mean the guy was asleep in Richard, his car yeah. how do you go from being asleep in your car to being killed
3: i mean G- george floyd uh, n- none of them should have died. The, the police are militarized to their teeth and they shoot everything, yeah. right? That's kind of, that's that's the problem, right? And I'm not even, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a cop. Maybe I'd be terrified I'm going to get killed every day. I don't know, but.
2: But but, but one of the things to keep in mind is that I, I believe this statistic is right, uh, but, but I know it's something of this attitude. Every time a, a policeman shoots one white person, kills one white person, they kill 22 people of color. 22 uh, it, it, the, the distribution is just so out of proportion <laughs> this this is um
3: so the Washington Post started to track all police killings mm-hmm. and the 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 like the sheer number of people that are killed by police more whites are killed by police than blacks because there's more whites in this country but they shoot more blacks by percentage like if blacks are 13 percent of the country 26 percent of the people shot by police are black which tells that you, the okay. that's the number, right. So that's the double of the population in the country. Like, why is that? That's where you start to go. There's a problem here with the way police perceive black people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. Maybe no place.
2: Yeah, no, no. But I mean, these are startling things. I mean, I, I do wonder had that guy been asleep in his car, had he been a white person, would, would, would the person even have called the police? Yeah. Yeah. What they have yes. viewed him as dangerous? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I can tell you, uh, I, I was driving, you know, we live in Sonoma most of the time. We have a house in the city. And I had an early meeting in the city uh, yesterday. So I came into the city early. I came into the city late uh, uh, the evening before last. And as I was driving up Van Ness, I saw a man, happens to be a white man, probably in his 30s, looking very panicked. And literally running on 101, um, on, on, on Van S. And, um, and I, I was in my car with my roof down. And I, I, I couldn't leave him. And suddenly he ran over to me. And uh, he said, you know, I just came down and my car was running. And I'm panicked. I think somebody's trying to hurt me. And I was very concerned about it. So I spent time with that guy. And I said, call the police. I will not leave you. Um, I think I would have done that for a black person or a white person, but I would say in this country that had that been a, and and it turns out, I think the guy was having um, a a paranoid breakdown. I I don't think there was anything, anybody after, I don't think any, his car was running. I think it was all in his head. He later began to show me. So he actually literally jumped in my car. My roof was down, literally jumped in my car. I didn't hit him. I didn't call the police. I didn't shoot him. I didn't want any harm to come to him. I felt like he was a person. Needed some help. And I think, unfortunately, in this country, if you're a black male, particularly, that is not the reaction that you get. Oh, 100% agreed.
3: Yeah. Uh, I thought you were going to tell me he called the police, they came and tried to arrest
2: you. That's how I thought that story was going to end. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things that people like me worry about is that they show up and they may think I'm a threat to him. Uh, you yeah. know, I'm just there trying to help him. And that's happened, as you know, yeah. that's made the media before where <laughs> black people have intervened in situations to try to help and the police show up and start shooting and they shoot the black person that's trying to help. Yeah.
3: the So, yeah, you know, my wife and I are talking about George Floyd. Absolutely. If that had been me, I would not have been killed. They would not have ground a knee into my neck until my esophagus yeah. collapsed and died. I feel uh, 100% sure on that. Richard Brooks, you know, I don't know if they would have killed me for that. It's hard to say. but. Yeah. George Floyd absolutely not. Tamir Rice absolutely not. I mean, you can just go through the line.
2: And the truth you know, is nobody should nobody should be killed with these things. Oh, of
3: nobody. course. I mean, you know, I was born in this country. I'm an American. I'm proud of a lot of things America's done, but sort of in my in like my darker moments, I think are we like a failed experiment? I mean, sometimes maybe the melting pot isn't quite the thing we think it is. And are the original sins of this country, genocide against native americans and then slavery and then capitalism although it drives innovation and fills the marketplace it grinds down the poor. Yeah. And we have this we have this like freedom of speech which is awesome except that it allows people to get online and say the most hateful things and collect mm-hmm. in little hateful units and then we have this sort of fatal flaw in our constitution that sort of allows any idiot to carry an automatic weapon around. And I'm like maybe this whole thing is going to come <laughs> crashing down. I don't know. I don't know.
2: Well, I worry. I worry about all the things that that you worry about. Um, you know, I am reminded that Hitler uh, did something that really the world should never forget, and and, yeah. and almost everything that he learned about uh, um, uh, about you know uh, superior of one race over the other based on genes was really based on American publications. You know, we actually in many ways. Uh, were responsible for yep. Hitler's thinking. Uh, and and the other ironic thing about Hitler is that I don't think he ever won an election.
0: He, oh, yeah. he,
2: he got all of his power without ever winning an election. And I don't want to lose the parallel there. <laughs> but yeah. But, yeah. but sometimes people can amass enormous power. Um, and, and then suddenly you have a country that's completely lost. I mean, I don't think the majority of Germans actually wanted have what happened to Jews happen? I think many of them were kept ignorant of what was really going on.
3: Yeah, and then um, then the fear thing starts playing out. One like the if, fear If, thing they, if they if they speak up, what happens to them? Kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know.
2: Well, there was a. There, I was my wife is Chinese, and we were watching a news uh, piece yesterday, and there was a Japanese woman in Seminole County, which is where we used to live when we lived on the peninsula, who was saying that so many of the Japanese had been interned uh, here in America uh, during World War II. And they have that harmful memory about race and how it can hurt you. But when it comes to discrimination against African-Americans, they have kind of sided with white people because they don't want to put themselves in play to be the target. It was a very interesting admission that you made that there's kind of to your point, there's kind of this fear if you don't go along, uh, and I think that's exactly what was operative in yeah. Germany, and I think that's been operative with 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 many groups of individuals um, uh, historically.
3: Which tells you, you know, that it's human nature; it's the self-preservation instinct. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. Um, I have one more thing I want to ask you, and I don't know that you have an answer to this, but when you sort of look at uh, what you you call this George Floyd catharsis, almost and i'm wondering if there's sort of one thing where whites look at it one way and blacks are looking at it another way and we're not seeing eye to eye on it.
2: Well, i mean, there was a line that i've used a lot in my life uh, as a as as a leader. Uh, I really started to use this line a lot when i was at Genentech and the line is where you stand often depends on where you sit. Um and 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 that's there's no doubt that's no doubt true and that's one of the reasons that diversity is so important is that diversity allows you to get beyond uh, the myopia of what an individual can see and appreciate based on their background and their experiences so diversity mm-hmm. allows you to get beyond that and have a team have an organization which is much more uh, broad and can be much more strategic about dealing with issues um, uh, by covering every avenue so uh, so so I I think that's you know got to be true that you're going to be somewhat, influenced by by your perspective. But I also think that there is a lot of common ground here. Uh, And if we focus on the common ground, that's where you can move things forward. So I think in general, uh, no good police believes killing people um, uh, is appropriate. Now, this country has had many KKKs. And we have a history in our country of KKKs being chief of police. So uh, so those are individuals who are not really embracing fundamentally what police say they're supposed to be doing. The state they're list, people who've yeah. got these jobs. So so I think if we really have police focusing on what police should focus on, there's a lot of common ground here. Um, um, we all want to feel protected, but, but, but the truth is that... I'm mostly nervous that I'm gonna get the short in the stick when I know it, at least. And I pay most, I pay a lot more taxes than most Americans. So yeah. I'm funding this, and it's not, it's not right. So we need to focus on the common ground and we need to focus on fundamental issues and get beyond these superficial things which uh, uh, which are holding us back. Race is fundamentally a superficial issue in the very beginning. Yeah, it's, it's a just, construct, it's, right? It's a it's a construct. Yeah, you was know, man created for devious reasons, and 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 the world needs to pull out of it and just say, you know, I don't care if you're black. I mean, my wife is Chinese, uh, and and I can tell you, I had a lot of issues about not marrying a black person. I had a lot of issues.
3: You mean I from your telling,
2: family? Well, from me personally, I mean, let alone let alone my family, it was I just you mean. know, am I doing something wrong? Am I? Uh, betraying or, you know, yeah, and, and, and it's silly, you know, you just find the person that's authentic to you and helps you and, and you love and get on with it and don't care about it. But in this society, it's very hard to do that because we're very caught into it.
3: I, uh, I, this is many years ago, but I was talking to, I was in this class and I said, we were talking about race and sports, I think, or something. And I said, you know, kind of my hope is that we just all keep, intermarriage and intermingling and eventually we're all sort of like one sort of creamy color and this woman a black woman is like it'll be something else if it's not that it'll be something else to divide us up that's depressing thought but um i don't know maybe that's true i don't
2: know it it is the history of the world right in yeah it is it's about it's about it's about caste uh in some countries it's about your religion um uh, uh, and 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 unfortunately it's the nature of humans to try to figure out a, a way to get an advantage yeah. to define why i am intrinsically better than you and yeah. i think it's i think it's a false it, it's a false process that takes us all down and if it but we we have to push against it because i do think that she's got a good point that yeah. historically we've shown a propensity to go toward this
3: yeah um, good talk, Ted.
2: No, it's it's a great talk. I'm I'm thrilled that you're doing it. I think the more conversations that we have um, are going to point out how we're all the same, and if we all are focused on helping each other, loving each other, supporting each other, uh, all the boats will rise, crime will fall, fear will fall, happiness will increase, utopia, and we'll have a better we'll have a better place. Yeah. We're going in the opposite of utopia right now. I'd like
3: to get us charged in running for it. Yep. Agreed. Um, Okay. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it, Ted. I will – hold on. I'm going to stop this recording. Okay. That is it. The end of the First Rounders podcast with Ted Love. Thank you, Ted. I feel a little better. I feel like that conversation um, was useful. I think maybe – Something good will happen through all this I think we have felt that before in this country That we've reached a tipping point and things are going to get better And then we have seen that that is not The case or that the change Is incremental But I'm going to cross my fingers this time And keep keep doing what I can So Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use Of their music in this podcast If you'd like to find us on Twitter Our handle is at Nature Biotech You can speak to us about this podcast, forum, or other podcasts, or anything else that the journal does. What else? Yeah, there's another one coming. It's in the can already. I recorded it. It's ready to go. It's uh, It'll be out July 1st. I'll even tell you who it is. Katrine Bosley. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.